Welcome to Software Snack Bites. I'm your host, Shomik Ghosh of Bold Start Ventures, where we partner with Dev First and SaaS founders from the first line of code. Today, we're excited to have Julia Schottenstein on the show. Julia is a product lead at DBT and formerly a VC at NEA. In this episode, we're going to cover trends in the data infrastructure space and how analytics engineering is also evolving. So welcome to the show, Julia. Great to be here. So let's start with your background. How'd you end up at DBT? So I have an unusual journey, I'd say, to getting to DBT. You mentioned I was first in venture, so I used to be on your side of the house. And I was investing at NEA for a number of years in, in open source, dev tools, data, infra companies. And it was back in 2019 where I first heard of these three letters, DBT, kind of hear them once and then they start popping up seemingly everywhere. But I got excited about the vision for the technology and the product started seeing it more and more and got pretty close to Tristan. The founder wanted to be an investor in the company because I really believed in the mission of what they were trying to do, which is really democratize access to data transformation and let people who have a better understanding of their business be able to participate in the data prep work. And I wasn't able to invest, but still had this undying conviction in what they were doing. And so I Changed the conversation instead to talking to Tristan about joining the company and being a part of the team that helped build the product. So I joined in 2021. That's amazing. And well, one, I know everyone's a big fan of the podcast that you've since launched since joining the Analytics Engineering Podcast. We'll actually talk a little bit about that in some future questions. But I'm curious, you know, I happen to know you're an avid runner and I believe have actually done a couple marathons, if not more than a couple, just for me, selfishly, like when I try and go out and do a long run, I get really, really bored. I, I just, <laughs> I like, I don't know what to do. I'm like yeah. running around. I'm like, what's going on? So like, what do you do to like get yourself in the mindset of like, hey, I'm going on this long run and I'm just going to like get it done? Yeah. So I think the surprising thing maybe is that all runners, most of them start off with a hate relationship with running. You kind of build it over time. My first tip would be try to find beautiful places to run. I'm lucky because I mostly do my running in San Francisco. So lots of options in the Bay Area to have really pretty trails. And then my second tip is I zone into audiobooks. So it allows me to consume a lot of content. And I get in this headspace where I find my rhythm and really go deep in the story. And it's pretty like therapeutic, honestly, for me. And so that's when you're able to turn a run from a painful one into something really enjoyable is when you can just find your own pace and rhythm in the journey. How quickly before a marathon do you actually need to start training? Is it a month before? Is it three months? Is it six months? I'm like an over prepare, I would say, where I I know I can run the marathon before I even sign up. <laughs> so I'm like, okay. I'm making sure I have my long runs in and then I get the courage to fill out the form to sign up for the marathon. So I'm always in like long distance running shape, but I'd say you need about, you've never done one before, like four to six months, depending where you're starting from. Okay. Got it. Well, I've only done halves and we'll see if I ever get to a full, but <laughs> you're totally there. It's just do it twice. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess that's that's true. It's a little bit a little bit hard for me to visualize it, but you know, one thing actually we didn't go over this in in your background, but I think you actually were at Catalyst early on in your career, and one of the things I think it's so interesting about Catalyst is like talk about just 
an absolutely dominant organization that just every single tech deal over a billion dollars in value seems to have them on one side of the equation. You know, I guess what were some of your learnings from being at Catalyst and seeing what they were doing to kind of accomplish that level of dominance? It's been really fantastic to see their journey. And, you know, I joined Catalyst when they were still a pretty young investment bank. They're only a few years old. And I got lucky in a lot of sense because I had just finished a summer at a big name, Bulge Bracket Bank, and I hated it. <laughs> so I think if it hadn't been for like really not liking that experience, I found Catalyst early and they seemed pretty unique in that they were hyper specialized. They only did one thing and they did it well, which was sell side tech MA for really big companies. They were on the geekier side. They had like a real passion for technology, which was rare in the investment banking industry, where I think you could lean more like finance type versus tech enthusiast type. And I joined and it was really where they were hitting their stride, where they were becoming the dominant player and the banker of choice if you were going to sell your company. The experience there was really intense. I look back on it very fondly, met some of my closest friends, but you really did like learn to push your limits of what it means to work very, very hard. You lived at the office. But as a benefit, you got to be like a fly on the wall in really important rooms at critical moments in companies' journeys when they were deciding, you know, if they were going to sell or who they would sell to, how to get the best value for their shareholders. One of the incredible things was just getting to see some of the very best negotiators do their craft and practice it. And they really let the youngest people in the room get to listen in on those conversations. So George Boutros, Frank Quattrone, Jonathan Turner, Brian Kane, they're just really, really exceptional at their craft and know how to get the very best deal done. It's amazing. I, I can't imagine Frank Quattrone's Rolodex has got to be something something else entirely. But um one question I'd like to ask you before we kind of fully delve into DBT is you're at NEA, you're seeing tons of companies across, you know, all over. I mean, I knew you focused on software infrastructure while there. So like all over across software infrastructure. And clearly there's something you were seeing about DBT that got you excited from your position of being able to invest in any company, see all these different companies to be like, hey, there's something special going on in DBT. So what was it that was that special that you were just like, hey, I need to, you know, reach out to Tristan and like figure out a way to join this company? Yeah. So I think it was a few things for me. So first, it was the way people talked about their product was unlike anything I had heard before. It really felt like an identity more than software, which was unusual to see. You know, people often will say, oh, yes, I love this tool or the software really helps me do my job. And it kind of ends there. And that's usually the positive review that you get to hear. But with DBT, it was a whole different type of movement that you would hear people really identifying as, I only work at companies that use DBT, or this is the new way of working. It's not just transforming my data, but it's transforming my team. And so it was this very, very strong affinity to a product that I'd never come across before that really caught my attention. And then when I, dug in, it felt like all of the momentum was really gathering behind DBT into a modern cloud data warehouse. And you really needed this unifying layer to properly describe all your business logic and become a standard 
for how data teams described their most important business attributes in their data. And so I thought, you know, if DBT worked, it could work in a really, really big way because it was a standard. You know, this was back in like 2019 that I was getting really excited. Snowflake was still a young company, but was hitting its stride. That was a year went from like a $4 billion to $12 billion valuation. So it was becoming a real breakout. And this felt like that next layer on top of all of these tailwinds pointing towards cloud was the future and you're going to need a way to work with your data in the cloud. And teams were really coalescing around DBT as being the framework and standard of choice. That's what I got really excited about. And Tristan in particular was a big draw for me in wanting to be a part of the company. I thought he had this amazing ability to paint a picture of the future that was very compelling, but he was really grounded and rooted in the day-to-day work of the practitioner and understood the pain points today. And so that range of skill set of being able to do the work yourself, but also paint this very captivating future was rare. Yeah. So I'd like to dive into actually what DBT does. So we mentioned data transformation and doing that in the warehouse, but maybe if you could describe a little bit more in depth of like, what does that mean? What do people actually use DBT for? That would be great. So DBT, it's a framework, it's a language that lets data teams transform and maintain high quality data sets easily and reliably. And I think its power is really in its simplicity. It's like when people first hear about DBT, they're like, oh, my company does something similar. We built a tool in-house that worked similarly. And it's really not that it's a complex or innovative in the technology, but it's the right Goldilocks solution that makes it very accessible. That if you know SQL, then you now have the right to do data transformation work. And just like software developers, you can't just push code to production without the proper guardrails and checks in place because that would lead to mayhem. The same thing needed to exist in the data analytics world where you needed the right guardrails and the ability to earn the right to push to your production cloud warehouse. And that turned out looking pretty similar. You needed things like version control, testing, modularity of code, documentation, CI, all of these principles that software engineers figured out that these are the steps you need to get high quality applications. You needed the same thing in the data world and DBT really standardized the way that teams could work and made it more accessible such that you didn't need you know, a fancy engineering degree to participate in this workflow everyone should be able to do it and we'll make sure you do it responsibly and safely and that things are more often correct when you finish your work. How close are we to that parity between data team workflows and the developer workflows? Because with developers, you know, version control, CICD, IDEs, like we've got, (laughs) you know, there's, there's a huge massive ecosystem around that, right? And then flip side is I think when you go to data, There's companies that are still emerging in each of those categories, but meanwhile, DBT has provided a lot of them in one platform. And so I'm curious, like, where are we in that gap? Are we 80% of the way there? Are we 50% of the way there? How would you kind of describe it? I don't think parity is the right way to think about it because you can't copy paste a workflow from a different industry and apply it to data and expect that it's going to work well. I think there's a lot that we borrow from software engineering 
that is really, really helpful. I named a few of them with version control, CI, CD monitoring, but you can't have the exact same workflow work in data because data has gravity in a way that you don't have with applications. Like you can't just like discard all of your data and expect things to work well. You don't have the right interfaces. So we're still borrowing a lot from software engineering. I think one of the interesting trends that we are going through right now is what does it mean to break up a monolith in the data world? In software engineering, there was a big trend instead of having these enormous monolithic applications to break it up into services that communicated with each other via API. It's a bit harder to do in the data world to have this clean interface between different data sets and different teams. And we're trying to evolve that thinking of how do we give teams proper ownership, proper velocity, be able to move quickly without breaking things and have these structured ways of collaborating across teams or across data sets in perhaps a mesh way or, or similar to that breaking down into microservices for data. So there's a lot to learn. I think we still have a far ways to go, but it's not an apples to apples comparison always. Yeah. One of the things that's impressed me the most about DBT from the outside has been just in a ridiculous community. I mean, it's just everybody's hanging out in the community. There's a constant blog post, there's videos, there's knowledge being shared. Coalesce has become, a, frankly, a very big data conference that I think lots of people are attending and looking at those new talks. Like, What was it about that early community, I guess, when it's getting started that really resonated? Was it maybe people trying to embrace the data warehouse and be like, how do we do this? Was it specific to data transformation workflows in general? Like, I'm kind of curious what happened there and then how did it grow to become this thing where it's, you know, now, now I think everybody in data is just hanging out in the DBT community. Yeah. So it started in a really authentic way. Tristan and, and the team at Fishon Analytics, they were a consulting firm and they were helping their clients do data work. And so it was a way to hang out and talk about problems. I think the community really evolved because we struck a chord with this underserved population, which is you know, data analysts. They're the ones that do analysis on data. They work very closely with their business partners to figure out how to use data sets as the advantage for the company. But the prerequisite of any good data analysis is having clean, prepared data that you can use in your production cloud warehouse. And often there was this big disconnect between the people who did the analysis or worked with the business partners and the people who cleaned and prepped your data, traditionally more data engineers. And so it was a broken game of telephone often where before you could get your work done, you needed to either work with this other team that would help you get clean prep data in the format that you needed. We were given tools that didn't quite get the task done. So there was real frustration there. And, and I always like thinking about analytics engineers, the, the people that we serve, as just a really pissed off data analyst that wanted to be able to own their workflow more end to end. And so that community really evolved around the analytics engineer and this workflow that was broken. And it wasn't just the technology that was a problem, but it was an, also an organizational problem. And people really got a lot of shared identity, shared ideas, 
were able to make this movement happen because they were all seeing very similar pain points at their organizations, which was how do we bridge this gap between the people who do data work with their business partners and allow them to stretch beyond just the analysis piece, but also help create the clean, prepared data tables. That's a prerequisite for any work they want to do. As the community has grown bigger and DBT itself has obviously grown very rapidly, how are you able to continue to manage that you know, it won't be quite like the early days, but still have the the same engagement. Like I imagine, is there a whole DevRel team that's going there? Is, are there community members that are like considered advocates or something or have like a DBT advocate badge or something like that? How do yeah. you kind of go about that? It's super challenging. I think every community that evolves at scale becomes something different. And so you have to try to create those affiliations in different ways than when it was a smaller community. So we have 50,000 people in our DBT Slack today. Try having a conversation with 50,000 people. Of course, that's not going to work. And so we try to think about creating micro communities within our broader community. And that could be regionally. We have lots of meetups. Coalesce is our big industry event. And we make a really strong point of not just having one Coalesce event in San Diego this year, We are doing it throughout the world because our community is everywhere. So we're having multiple events in Europe. We're having one in Australia. And we want to be local with our community because it's everywhere. So we try to also, beyond just creating these like micro communities, we want to make sure the conversation is always interesting. And we're helping both the new people coming to the community that need basic questions get served, but also there's group of people in our community that are really sophisticated and they're reaching kind of different challenges because the complexity and evolution that they've gone through is much more mature. And so serving both the newcomers and the people that are much more mature, it's a hard challenge and we try to segment the community in that way so that we have something for everyone. Got it. So there's like maybe more specific on-ramps for the new community members versus the existing ones where it's like, okay, we know what topics you're already excited about. Here's how we can help serve you better. It makes sense. So one question I actually have around the future of DBT and where you want to go, just again, from an outsider's view, got the core transformation workflow nailed down. It's pretty much a de facto tool that everyone uses. And then I forget what it was, but maybe a year ago or something, DBT shipped a metric store, and then recently acquired Transform. So it seems like, okay, now moving into the semantic layer, right? Having that all put in. And then is the next step like BI and visualizations or, or kind of, and I, I don't know what you could talk about or yeah. not, but I'm just curious, like what is being assembled? <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's a good question. We're very famously vocal for, no, we will not build a BI layer. It's a problem space I'm kind of intimately familiar with. I was an investor of Metabase. And it's a very, very hard problem to solve. I think you need someone who has tremendous focus in that area. And for us, you know, we believe that the semantic layer should be separated from the Viz layer. And the reason for that is you want all of your business logic and all of your metrics definitions to be defined in this abstraction layer that no matter where it's consumed, whether it's a BI layer or it's a data application, it shows up in a data catalog. 
shows up in your machine learning model, that it's consistent. So the problem we're more interested in solving is this middle layer where all of your business logic is defined and creating really great integrations with the consumption layer, whether it be a BI tool or machine learning application or a data app or what have you. But we don't want to go and build that ourselves. We just want to be really good partners to those that are focusing in that area. We have to talk about the buzzword du jour of the year or six months, whatever it would be, the time frame. But, you know, LLMs, right? Seeing a ton of text to SQL stuff that's out there. One, I guess the broad question would just be how are you and the rest of the DBT team thinking about LLMs and thinking about how that might change the analyst engineer's workflow? Yeah, so we're thinking really deeply about it. We are we're very excited about how generative AI is going to augment the data workflow. I think the most obvious place that we see it changing the way people work is in augmenting in code gen. There's a lot of tedium and data prep work. You have to describe YAML config, which can get very verbose. You have to write your own documentation. There are a lot of steps to creating DBT projects in data prep. And we think this is a really great use case, at least for an LLM or generative AI tooling to give a first pass and to be approved and finished and polished by your data team. So that's the first one. I think the second use case that we're really excited about is I strongly believe that a lot of the conversational AI where you can ask questions of your data won't be successful unless you've implemented a semantic layer. So it's on your data team's duties now to make sure that all of your business metrics are well-defined. What is the semantic meaning of ARR? What's the semantic meaning of retention churn? And so then when you have business users ask questions of their data in natural language, you're going to get the answers that you expect back. So if you want to ask a question like, what was my retention for a particular product in North America for the last quarter? Those all have really specific semantic meanings that need to be modeled by your data team because they really understand the business context and you can do it in your DBT semantic layer. And then hopefully there'll be a way that you can use natural language to ask questions of your semantic layer and self-serve a lot more easily than you could in the past. Yeah. So going on that thread, do you think like the kind of whole conversational UI to this expands the potential for, you know, truly gets to the vision that we've had of like business users get to go in, like ask the questions. And then it sounds like, you know, like you said, semantic layer needs to still be handled by the data team, but also maybe what other parts need to get served as well is something like, is the data clean? Is it properly done? Is this the right asset that can even be done? So is it, I guess my question is like, if someone's truly going in self-serving, is there going to be like a asset store somewhere that's like been checked off by the data team of like, hey, these are general assets that you can query or something? How do, how do you visualize that? Self-serve is such a hard problem. It's kind of the hard problem in data, which is how do you create enough control by the data team such that the metrics that you care about have been reviewed, are accurate, that there's a really, really high bar there that really shouldn't be self-served. But there's like a long tail of questions where, you know, directionally correct is actually helpful for your business users. And 
the data teams can't possibly answer 100% of the questions that your team has. So getting to a place where you do give them the tools to self-serve the long tail is, is really important. And I think natural language interfaces to data is going to be a critical part of solving that problem. But I think that we'll have you know, other solutions as well. We talk a lot about data apps. People have different definitions for what that means. But for me, it's just you know serving data in different contexts. So that way, it's really a part of your workflow as opposed to needing it to be a destination or something that you have to stop your work and think about data it should just be really natural to pull constantly from the data in your cloud warehouse and, and have it be integrated in whatever work you're doing throughout the business. Got it. That makes sense. I'd love to shift into analytics engineering. And so <laughs> we, we talked about being a pissed off data analyst, but maybe uh, if you were to give a different definition, what would you describe an analytics engineer to be? That's it. Just pissed off data analyst. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's these words are funny because DBT didn't invent the word analytics engineering, but we've really like embraced it as our spirit persona of who we're trying to solve for. And I think the easiest way to understand it is first to understand the two poles. So there's the data analyst who usually works in SQL. This is a person who's analyzing your business data, helping your business users make decisions better. And so they're usually very often embedded in like functional groups within your organization. So that's your data analyst, someone who's like querying and doing analysis. The data engineer on the other end of the spectrum has to do all of the data prep work. And so that could be a number of things of ensuring all of your data that comes from many dozen sources, sometimes hundreds of sources, gets pulled into a centralized data warehouse, lake house, whatever you're picking, gets prepped and cleaned so that you have high quality data and creates data assets to be consumed by people who are doing the analysis. So that's the data engineering work. There are often much more focused on the systems and making sure things are reliable and accurate and less interested in how the data is being used. And so you can see here that you have this gap now where you have people thinking about systems and then you have people thinking about business. But there's this middle space where you really need someone who understands the business to also be the one to get data in the right shape. And that's the transformation piece, creating pipelines or DBT transformations to take data from disparate sources, join it, create the proper definitions that matches your understanding of your business, and have that be the foundation for any analysis you do. So the analytics engineer is really the kind of hybrid role of the two. And I think it's most similar to maybe in software engineering, if we were to borrow from lessons there as well, used to have the of application software developers and used to have the ops team that were responsible for deploying software applications. And there was a lot of kind of throwing it over the fence, broken workflows. People who deployed the apps didn't, didn't actually know how it worked and you needed to have better communication lines. And so that's where the DevOps movement was really born. It was a combination of software development and ops, you have DevOps. And, and similarly, with analytics engineering, it's the combination of data analysis and data engineering. 
That is the best explanation I've heard yet because also I love the mapping to the software engineering framework. That's how my mind works. And so it makes it a lot easier, at least for me personally to understand. So thank you for that. But you've ran now the analytics engineering podcast for year, two years now? Yeah, since I started, we're over two years now. So over two years, I guess, what have been some of your biggest takeaways from talking to practitioners in the space? Well, I think the interesting thing in that time period is I think the tooling has largely been established now. I really do feel like the modern data stack is coming into the young adult era where maybe prior there was a lot of chaos or people didn't know what to do or was grow at all costs. Now people are getting a lot more sophisticated with their workflows, much more efficient. The tooling is in place and really optimizing their workflows well. And so that's an exciting place to be. All of the challenges I still see are much more organizational and thinking about which workflows should be owned by whom and how do they work together. These are really harder problems to solve. And so we talk about some of this on the podcast as well. What we try to do on the Analytics Engineering Podcast, which is a a show I co-host with Tristan, our CEO, every other week, we try to bring some practical advice and also some impractical advice. So we have a combination of practitioners, entrepreneurs, technologists that are working on both solutions you can use today at your organization and also thinking about problems on the frontiers of the data industry. And so for me, that's also very exciting of thinking about the impractical and what's coming down in the future of the industry. I sort of have a spicy question for you, which is like the modern data stack, right? It's the buzzword that existed, honestly, before LLMs, right? And it became this big thing and everyone was publishing stuff about modern data stack and this is what it means stuff. I guess from your perspective, like, is it now just table stakes? Like you said, the young adult age, like, are we now just like, okay, we don't have to even brand this thing anymore and talk about it. Like it just, people know what it is or are we still in that evangelism cycle of needing to extend the arms out more to get people to embrace, you know, kind of the way of doing things? It's a mix of both. I would maybe say this is table stakes for a vast majority of people. We don't have to have the conversation anymore of should I move my data to the cloud? People are pretty aligned there that if you move your data to the cloud, you get all these wonderful benefits of cheaply storing your data, being able to scale out easily, find better use cases for your data, collaborate better, the tooling's more composable so you can get a lot more done more easily in the cloud. And I would say for most companies, that is like a foregone conclusion at this point. But I am still surprised that there's just a tremendous market here. And it's really, really hard for lots of companies that have very complex technology stacks. They've made the decision, but they're still in the process of moving to the cloud. And we're going to still see that for another decade. And beyond that, it's like once your data is in the cloud, great, you have this hierarchy of needs where first is like reporting, understanding what's happening with your business. But now there's this whole nother wave of operationalizing your data. If your data is high quality enough, great. How can you use it to make real-time decisions or how can you use it in real time to operationalize the efficiency of your business? And then beyond that, which is becoming more realistic now as well everything that's happening in machine learning and AI, data is the foundation for your competitive advantage. And so it's certainly a modern data stack. I think 
that's been agreed upon. Yes, we're there. Everyone's moving to the cloud, but the use cases are still really evolving. That makes sense. I'd love to shift into actually more of the product side now. So as we said before, you were a VC and then you made that move into product. Not many people do that, right? Some go from product to VC, but it's kind of not as common to go from VC to product. So describe that transition for us and what were maybe the challenges or maybe what were the the easiest things about it? I try to distill my interests down into like three things. I really care about business. I really care about technology and I care about ecosystem. And I think venture and product both afford me to express those interests, but with different weights. So in venture, I was more on the ecosystem, more on the business, less on the technology. And in product, I'm much deeper on the technology, still deep on the business and less on the ecosystem. So it's just a shifting of those interests. But I think the people who are drawn to product and venture, there's a reason why there are lots of people that have tried both industries or or both professions. It's because People are often drawn to both the technology side and the business side, and you can express those interests in both professions. For me, jumping over into the product side was at first challenging. I think in venture, you have to know quite a lot about many different types of companies and you have an inch deep knowledge and your value is actually in being able to connect different disparate threads across a very wide range of the industry. When you go into product, you actually must be deep because making product decisions is really just the culmination of lots of little micro decisions that add up and make or break the user experience. And so that was kind of hard for me at first to go really deep. I remember showing up and a month in, my engineering counterpart gave me the advice of, it would be good if you were more technical. And that was like an oh shit moment for me because I was like, I thought I was technical. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And like depth and expertise just takes time. And I feel like I'm there now. I got a compliment from a a new engineer on my team recently saying that I was the most technical product manager that he's ever worked with. And it's like, it was a silent victory for me because, (laughs) you know, it was something I was really trying to grow in and, and actively change. But I think, you know, venture and product are similar in a lot of ways, but really different on that depth piece where you you absolutely must be an expert in product and you can't get away with faking it. That's a very good way of explaining that transition. But in DBT, you've got, we talked about this community, you've got a ton of open source users and they're all using the product in different ways. They're extending it, they're contributing to the open source. And the flip side, of course, you've got the DBT cloud customers, right? And those are larger and larger organizations. They're using this critically in their workflows. And so how do you kind of manage the feedback and the requests between those two orgs and what you're gonna prioritize or think about how to ingest their feedback? Yeah, one of the most exciting parts about DBT is that we are really horizontal in nature and that if you have a cloud data warehouse, which we've just established is everyone, then DBT is a great fit for you. And we have open source and cloud offerings. We don't really make the distinction in quite the same way that you asked the question, which is DBT is the language to framework. And if you're a cloud user, you're using DBT. It's the heart of everything we do. And so an investment in our open source, it benefits everyone. And so the way we think about 
building product in core versus cloud is cloud is the best way to develop, promote, deploy, and monitor DBT at scale in complex organizations. And so we built tooling around DBT that's proprietary. And the distinction we try to be pretty disciplined here is that, you know, core, it's open source, it's language, it's stateless, it's where you describe your business logic. And then in cloud, it's stateful. So we're really invested in making rich experiences for teams and organizations that supercharges the DBT workflow. And we deliver that via a SaaS application. Got it. That makes sense. What about the balance between kind of future things that you'd like to do? We talked about LLMs, right? But then also the things that customers are asking for now. It could be you know, security, it could be integrations, it could be whatever. How do you kind of manage that? So we take product bets in two dimensions. The first is responding to needs that we need to sell today. And the second are TAM expanding bets. And they're both important because you need to take care of the short-term and long-term aspirations of the business. Because if you only succeed at one, then you've failed altogether. And this trade-off, I think, is really hard all the time because certainly you have different teams within your organization that prioritize near-term investments. And then you have other teams that sole job needs to be prioritizing long-term investments. And so it's a tension that you want to keep. And at different points in your company's evolution, you need to invest more in near-term. And and at other points, you need to make investments more in longer-term. And so one that we've made concretely today is like the semantic layer that is a very long-term investment for us because the value of the semantic layer is only as valuable as the ecosystem. All of the consumption layer is going to make integrations with our metrics definitions. And that will take time, but we feel like we've established ourselves as the most credible player because we have the distribution and the ecosystem and the users to make that bet. And so we don't expect to make near-term revenue on the semantic layer. It's just not a goal of ours. But what we are thinking about is long-term, like, do we want to be the ones who bring this technology into the world and help power this really important critical use case for our users? Absolutely. And we have to start making that progress today. And so it's really a longer-term bet for us. But the tension is there. We're always thinking about where do we make our product investments, kind of near-term revenue versus longer-term TAM expansion. And if I had a perfect answer there, then the job would be very easy. That's true. <laughs> so DBT been just growing like crazy and scaling and hiring tons of people. You've seen it from the venture side, and now you're seeing it <laughs> in the in the company itself. How have you personally been able to deal with that scaling? And then what tips would you externalize from that experience to founders and, and team members that are going through it from their side as well? Yeah. Oh, uh, I don't know if I have advice yet. We're still deeply going through that scaling journey. So I don't feel like we've declared ourselves victors or experts in this nature, but you really feel like you're in it when you're going through it. The thing that I think is most remarkable is like how similar some of the scaling challenges feel across companies. 
So one of the things that I've done is just have a group of peers who I can trust that are going through the similar scaling journey at different companies, either a little bit ahead of where we are at DBT Labs or, or at a similar stage. And, you know, things that feel hard or problems really aren't so unique. And there's a lot of comfort knowing that there are common patterns of thinking of ways, things that break at certain scaling points and just need to be rebuilt again. And it's everything from the way you communicate, from the way that you build teams, from the way you build your applications and software, everything breaks at a certain point. And just having comfort in that, oh, yeah, like that broke for us too at this scale is really impactful and going through the journey. So try to find a peer set that you can trust and have these shared learnings from. What about on the hiring side? Because at that sort of scale, you're having to ingest a lot of new people and try and make them efficient. Any tips, learnings, tactics that you have been able to use to get people, one, to even figure out how to get enough candidates for roles and hire them, but then also to enable them once they're in the job? Yeah, I think hiring has become easier in recent markets just because it's been a tougher job market. I think the harder part is how do you get people very successful in their roles and communication and learning is hard at scale. And so in the earlier days, you could have like shared context and everyone was on the same page about like what we put in open source versus what we put in cloud or what is the long-term vision of the company or what's the product strategy here. And as you scale, you can't have that conversation over and over again. So just documenting and writing down some of this principles that you hold really dearly to you is so important. And then making sure that as people onboard into the company, that there's a set of things that they must read, doctrines of the organization where they can get on the same page really quickly. Otherwise, you find yourself repeating the same conversation over and over again. And having a written culture from very early days is very important because one-on-one relationships and collaboration really doesn't scale when you have you know, 440 people at the organization like we have today at DBT Labs. Yeah. So final question before we wrap things up is you have the purview in DBT of a lot of things happening in data. And I think it's a pretty cool place to be just given the connectivity that DBT has with so many different types of companies and systems. And so what data trends outside of DBT, obviously, specifically, are you very excited about? And what are those major trends that you think are unfolding in the data space? Maybe not so surprising or unique, but I am very excited about generative AI and maybe for a different reason, though. I think a lot of people have talked about how data is their competitive advantage for many, many years, but that really hasn't been true. There aren't a lot of industries that use data as their unique reason for why they win. FinTech is a good example. They need to be you know, really sharp with their data because you know, lending and credit is really just data models. But other industries don't have that same reliance on data as being their competitive advantage. And now I think with generative AI, like the models itself, they're going to be more commoditized. And certainly we have a model du jour that everyone will pick and coalesce around, but 
in time, that won't be as differentiating as the company's data is being an asset that can help that model be smarter and be more effective than your competitors or people that you are trying to win business against. And so what I'm excited about is being able to finally connect the dots of your data as your competitive asset being a reality as AI becomes far more accessible and we can apply it in new contexts. You know, that's the vision that we've had for a very long time, right? Yeah, we're close. It is funny. Like people talk about it so much for many, many years. Data is the new oil. And it really hasn't been like, it's important, yes, but it's not the reason that makes or breaks businesses. And I think we're close. (laughs) It's like, I do think it will start being a make or break for businesses. Yeah, I agree with that as well, especially as, you know, the LMs can be trained on your own data as a differentiator. And so the quality of that data, the usefulness of that is going to be very important. So I think, yeah, fully agreed and hoping and wishing that that vision does come true because that would be the the holy grail that we've all been hoping for. But so two questions that we ask everybody on the show to wrap things up. What's your favorite technology or app that you've played with or researched recently? So I'm going to give a shout out to Eric and what he's building at Modal. It's a brand new runtime container runtime written in Rust that lets people get the scale of cloud without the pain of managing Kubernetes or their own infrastructure. So they have a diverse set of use cases for their tech, but seem to have really found product market fit with a lot of AI and deep learning apps. And they help teams deploy on GPUs without the headache. And the reason why I'm excited about it is being product lead for CI and orchestration at DBT Labs. Like, We constantly have to fight Kubernetes at scale because we just have tremendous volume. And I'm very, very excited about Modal's vision because it's really ambitious in designing an alternative to Kubernetes from the ground up built for performance. And I'm excited that that a strong team is tackling it. I'm just excited about the blog post that the team puts out. I think it's like DBT level quality that the modal team puts out. So Eric, if you're listening, please keep that up. Love reading the blog post. But final question is, what's your favorite snack? So I'm in New York right now, and there's a coffee shop around the corner for me called Daily Provisions. They have the very best cherry oatmeal cookies, and they're dangerously good. So going to give a shout out to them as well. That would not be a combination that I would have thought about, but so I will <laughs> I'll keep a lookout for it. Uh, I'll definitely, uh, definitely see if I could try it next time. But Julia, thanks so much for being on the show and taking the time today. If people would like to find you, what's the best way for them to get in touch? Find me on Twitter at J underscore Schottenstein or LinkedIn, Julia Schottenstein, or check us out at DBT Labs or in the DBT community Slack. I'm always there and happy to meet people interested in DBT. We'll also link to the analytics engineering podcast as well, where people can listen to you interviewing others versus the opposite of what we're doing today. So fun to be in the hot seat. (laughs) Well, thanks so much. Thanks so much, Shaman. 